I find myself really touched as I'm sitting here thinking about companionship on the way and looking out at all of you. Some of you are new to me, but not all of you. And certainly there are many people here at Spirit Rock and people who come in once in a while like Taranea who have been companions on the way for a long time. And I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful to you for your practice and to the people who take care of this place and keep it for us. It's really an amazing thing to have companions on this journey that each one of us is doing in our own way. Each one of you has your own practice different from my practice, different from each other's practice. And yet, in this coming together to do this strange thing that we call meditation, um, it's just so helpful that we're doing it together. I don't know that I, I can say really any more about it than that, but it's a really, really wonderful thing. And I hope that as the days are going by, that you are appreciating it as much as I am. And last night, when Tara was talking, at one point I thought, this is such a good example of spiritual friendship. That as she sat there and talked about different aspects of practice and shared with you things that are helpful and some wonderful stories, I don't think I'll ever get over the Mexican blanket with the clothespins <laughs> down the front. I only wish I had walked into the hall at IMS and seen it. <laughs> or that maybe some did anybody take a photo? <laughs> so that, that just that way in which sometimes we share advice and teachings, you know, and we actually on the teachers council at Spirit Rock often talk about trying to hold our role as being one of spiritual friends. And so that it's, you know, it's like we're really all in this together. and We don't know a whole lot more than you do. Some of you know a whole lot more than we do. And, um, but there's a way in which, you know, we can offer each other assistance on the way. And then earlier this week we talked, this week, yeah, this week, We talked a little bit a couple of nights ago about the way in which we can access our own deep wisdom and in that way befriend ourselves and using that to support our practice. And as I've been talking with some of you in the groups and uh, meeting with people, you know, there's a lot of questions about this whole friendship thing, you know. Like, how do I do it? Someone wrote a note today and said, well, how, how, what, do, what do I do when I go in the bathroom and close the door? You know, how is it that I go in angry and I come out friendly? You know, what's going to happen in there that besides running a little water or something like that, flushing the toilet, it's got to have more to it than that, you know? <laughs> and people who, some of you, already looking towards going back into this or that situation when you go home and... You know, so, okay, it's one thing here, you know, but how do I do it 
out there? How do I keep my heart open and how do I reach out in friendship and how do I find spiritual friends? All those kinds of, of questions. And, um, and really, you know, just chewing on this question of friendship and, and how is it that we find it and, um, and how in particular does it support our practice? And how do we do it? How do we do it? So this particular lineage of practice comes from the forest traditions of Burma and Thailand. And 50 to 75 or 100 years ago, um, Burma and Thailand were covered with forests. And there were groups of monks who wandered through the forest as part of their practice. And they'd go out by themselves, they didn't go as a group, and they would, you know, practice under the trees and sleep under there. They had these things called glutes, which were like a big umbrella with mosquito netting all around, and that's what they had for shelter. Not much. Especially when you consider that there were tigers and extremely large snakes and elephants and all kinds of interesting creatures inhabiting the jungle and the caves. And there's just dozens of stories about the encounters that the monks would have with these creatures. And um, one of my favorites is of a monk who was out walking in the forest and he looked up and standing in front of him was a large tiger. And he thought, oh dear. So he turned around, and standing behind him was another large tiger. So he probably fairly reasonably thought maybe his life was over. And being a very good monk, um, an extraordinary monk actually, sounds like, he decided that what he needed to do was just stop and go into the deepest meditative state that he could access. And so he did. He stopped, he stood there, went, started with his breath, went as deep as he could go, got very, very quiet, very, very still. And when he opened his eyes, the tigers had gone. Marvelous story. I'm not sure I want to try it, but it's a great story. And there's another story where, you know, one of the monks wandered into a cave and thought it was a good place to spend the night and then discovered that he had a roommate. And the roommate was also a tiger in this case. And and so he practiced metta all night, this extension of loving-kindness. And, and he knew that, that when he got up in the morning and went out to, to go on alms round for his food, that that movement was probably the tricky place. So that was when, you know, if the tiger was going to decide that he was breakfast, he would be breakfast. But he kept extending metta, and when the morning came, he took his bowl and he walked out the door of the cave. And when he came back, the tiger was gone. So, you know, they're great stories about the power of this kind heart and this deep practice and this place of extending our friendship to all beings. And here we are, you know, we're in a place that's just filled with creatures. I had the marvelous experience yesterday. I was hiking up high and I saw a fox and, you know, a really beautiful creature. And people see bobcats here. And, once in a while we've had glimpses of mountain lions and 
there are plenty of deer, you know, just all over the place and not very afraid, have you noticed? You know, sometimes you can walk right up close to them and notice. Remember, on a recent retreat, noticing that the insides of their ears were pink. And, you know, those great turkeys wandering around doing their things and showing off. And the, the girls have disappeared, though. There were a lot of female turkeys around when I was here in March, but they're probably off sitting on their eggs at this point. And so we get to be here, existing side by side with all of these beings without... And they, you know, they, it's clear, they understand there's nothing that's going to happen to them here. If you walk right by them, you know, the deer, sometimes if you walk right by, they'll just lie there and chew on their cud and kind of look at you. Just pretty astounding, really, that they trust us that much. And it's really, it's a wonderful teaching in what it is to be in a setting where no one is going to get hurt. Isn't that amazing? No one is going to get hurt. And we get glimpses, you know, the the sutta on loving-kindness says that, um, you know, that this this kindness is, is one who, done by one who is peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, you know. And so we, we relate even to creatures in this friendly way. So there's a sequel to Taranea's story about the fly. Because sometime later, not too long later, I don't think, I was at IMS sitting a three-month retreat. Now, you're sitting a six-day retreat, five-day, depending on how you count it. But you know, a three-month retreat gets kind of lonely. And somewhere, it started in September, and somewhere in late October, I discovered that I had a fly in my room. He was hanging out on the window, and he didn't seem to go much of anywhere else. So I named him Fred, because I didn't have anybody else to talk to, right? (laughs) So there was Fred, and sometimes at breakfast I'd score a little piece of apple core or banana peel, and I would take it down and leave it by the window, thinking that maybe he would like something to eat, I guess. And so I hung out with Fred in a much more peaceful way than (laughs) Tarania hung out with her. But Fred was, you know, getting on, and and in fact, at some point, as it got colder and colder, one day I went down and Fred was gone. I actually looked for him (laughs) in all the crevices and cracks, you know, where, where was he, where was he? And um, I couldn't find him. So he crawled someplace and died, I think. My buddy Fred. And you know, these beings, sometimes they even teach us things. You know, they're great friends in that way. You know, I was watching the turkeys a lot in March when I was here. And I'm just so, you know, impressed, so impressed. You know, turkeys, like, turkeys don't know what time it is. That when the time changed for daylight savings, it was sort of astounding to me. I got up that Sunday morning and I went, oh, they don't even know that it's daylight savings time. It's just, they're just doing their thing. And it made me think a lot about how locked into time we are. And then I was watching how they would wander. And, you know, they'd be wandering up the hill and then they'd wander back into the forest. And they, just, they don't ever seem to go anywhere. They just wander. And, you know, we live these lives where we're so linear and we're so driven and we're so much going places all the time. So I've been talking about this a little since I came home, thinking maybe I was a little bit strange getting taught by the turkeys. 
and a friend gave me a writing from Buddhadasa Bhikkhu. And Buddhadasa was one of the great Thai meditation masters. He was the teacher of many of the people in my generation of students. And um, it's called it's called Don't Be Shamed by the Chickens, but we're going to call it Don't Be Shamed by the Turkeys for tonight. And he says, if we compare ourselves with turkeys, we'll see. They don't have headaches, insomnia, or ulcers. They're free of nervous tension and mental disorders. Maybe. <laughs> turkeys don't go crazy like we do every day. The world's people take drugs by the ton while the turkeys don't take even a speck. They sleep tight, minds at ease, 100%. Don't you feel a little embarrassed by the turkeys? (laughs) Human birth gives us the right to be neurotic. Should we count this as a blessing or a curse? Please find some dharma before it's too late to live happily, no longer shamed by the turkeys. So... You could do worse on this retreat to just go hang out with the turkeys and learn a thing or two. So these animals, in their, in their wonderful way, are companions on our way. And it's a very easy way to begin to see, oh, this is what, you know, this is what support for the practice looks like in a very simple form, you know, because they really do support our practice. So no matter how much experience you have, you know, some of you have sat a lot of retreats, some of you, it's a very first retreat, you come here in order to take on a training. It's a bit like going to the gym or to, the spa, to a spa, you know. Uh, and so you're coming to kind of work at your practice in a particular way for a period of time to... Um, bring more wisdom and to open the heart. And mindfulness is a huge piece of our training, that we, this very simple practice of mindfulness that we've been doing. And as I said this morning when we, in the question and answer period, that there is a sense in which this is a wonderful mother you know, this practice of ours, and learning to accept ourselves and, and others just as they are, you know, whatever is in this moment, this is the way it is, even if it's totally crazed, then that's what being totally crazed is like. It's really as simple as that. Isn't that wonderful? You know, it's so interesting with mindfulness, that there's nothing that you can't be mindful of. We're not ever going to say to you, no, don't let that one come in the hall. We're just going to say, pay attention. So no matter how nuts you are, how crazed you are, how much the mind is going around a gazillion miles an hour, all you have to do is notice it. That's really astounding then you're there, then you're back, then you're doing the practice. Simple as that. Simple as that. So mindfulness, in a very real way, deconditions the mind. And it deconditions it so that it's not so reactive. So that it's not always saying, no, not that, 
no, not that, yes, I want more of that, and grabbing and pushing away the way we do most of the time. And this other practice that we've been doing some, and we'll continue to do, this practice of loving kindness, or metta, M-E-T-T-A is how it's spelled, this practice kind of reconditions the mind. It trains the mind to go towards kindness, to go towards the open heart. And this is a hugely important ingredient of any kind of friendship, this ability to be kind. It's really training the mind to be friendly. And it's training the mind to be friendly to everyone. You know, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are great or small, omitting none. That's the clincher in the sutta. It's always the one that makes me go, oh. You know, and there's just no exceptions, none. So the Buddha, in one of his discussions about loving kindness, says this just to make it a little more intense. Even if the bandits were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw. So you can imagine this. There they are, working on your elbow. (laughs) He who gave rise to the mind of hate towards them would not be carrying out my teachings. Now, he doesn't say you shouldn't try to get away or any of that. He just says you can't hate them. Now, the bar is really high on this one, isn't it? I mean, this is a huge teaching, and it's real, it's nuts. I mean, it's so high. It's kind of insane. But in a wonderful way, sometimes when the bar is set that high, it kind of, it's really inspiring. It's like, oh, let's just go for it, you know. I don't think I can do it. So you kind of let go of some performance anxiety. But it gives us kind of a reckless courage of, oh, I wonder if I could really learn how to have my heart be that open. And everyone here knows how unskilled we are in the art of friendship and kindness. Henri Nouwen, who is a was a Christian writer, says this. He says, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all of us love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, unceasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak, that is the human family. So we recognize that. We know how poorly we love and how often we need both to forgive and to be forgiven. And we know how we make the same mistakes over and over and over again. You know, sometimes my husband and I look at each other and we go, oh, we're doing it again. You know, because you can see the same difficult pattern arise one more time. It's really helpful to be able to see it, but nonetheless, it's still there. And the teachings are that this is a good thing. We need to learn how to be kind. So we have to kind of figure it out. 
And we have to figure out how to do this skill. And it's a bit annoying because there's always that sense, isn't it, that, that we, should, we should be able to do this, you know? How come we don't know how to love each other? Isn't it? I grew up thinking it was supposed to be easy, you know? Didn't, you're supposed to love and be nice, and, and my parents very carefully hid any difficulties they had from us, and so I thought you got married and stayed that way happily ever after once you, know, once you were done getting married. And, of course, was rudely awakened as time went on and discovered that it wasn't that way and I didn't know how to do it and nobody else seemed to know how to do it. And, you know, any of you who have been in a long relationship, a long friendship, a long committed partnership, you know how difficult it can be. It is a veritable snake pit in there. It's really tough. And it's fraught. It's just fraught with difficulty and aversion and anger and fear and sometimes downright hatred. It just gets hard. And the bad news is, even if the other person dies, does the relationship end? It's also very good news, actually. It goes both ways, right? We all have people who have been with us on this planet, who have died, and we've discovered people that we love very deeply, or creatures that we've loved very deeply. And we've discovered, oh look, they're still here. There's a way that they're still here. They're still in your heart, right? The love doesn't die. It never dies. But unfortunately, when the relationship is difficult, that one doesn't die either. And sometimes that reverberation is still there. So it becomes really apparent that we need some training. We just desperately need to train in kindness or in the friendly heart, or as they say in Hawaii, where I live part of the time, you know, training to live aloha, which is a phrase that I like a lot. So we're really training the heart to be enormous. We're trying to stretch the heart so it can include all of these beings. And so we begin to do this as a practice. We take it on, not as a feeling, but as a doing. The doing of kindness, the doing of compassion, the acting in a way that is really, really supportive. So here's another Zen story from Robert Aitken Roshi, who wrote some of his own stories that are quite wonderful. This one's about Raven and Mrs. Bear. And so Mrs. Bear comes to a meeting late and she says, I'm really frazzled after dealing with my cubs. Any parent in the room will know this. And she says to Raven, who is her teacher, she says, what if I don't feel compassionate? And Raven says, fake it. (laughs) And Mrs. Bear says, that doesn't seem honest. And Raven says, it doesn't begin with honesty. Now there's one to chew on. You can chew on that one. It's very interesting teaching that sometimes we begin with the intention. We begin with the commitment to behaving in a kind and compassionate way. 
towards the most difficult person, even when they're wielding the saw. It's really hard with difficult people sometimes. Even there are people who are so blind and um, who do such terrible things. So if you ask any of the couples who have been together for a long time, you know, they will tell you, the ones who have made it through, of the, all the hard work and the near disasters and the crises and the patience and the surrender and the discipline and how much you, know, you have to give up frequently and often. In one of Robert Bly's poems, he says, when men and women come together, so any, when two people come together, really, how much they have to abandon. Wrens make their nests of fancy threads and string ends. Animals abandon all their money each year. What is it that men and women leave? Harder than the wrens doing, they have to abandon their longing for the perfect. The inner nest not made by instinct, will never be quite round, and each has to enter the nest made by the other imperfect bird. So this is a skill that we're going to learn. And each one of you is already learning it, I'm sure. I don't think you'd be here if you weren't. And it's it's so easy to think of it as a feeling that is somehow supposed to arise on its own, but it's not. It's something that you do. Again, at IMS, where both Tarni and I have sat, she more than I, but on one of my early retreats there, maybe even my first one, I was sharing a space with someone else who, and it was a space that was divided kind of into two separate sleeping spaces, but the divider didn't go all the way up to the ceiling, so it wasn't really two, we were really in one room. And um, I, as during those years, you could come and go from the three-month retreat at pretty much any time you wanted to that suited their schedule. And um, so I was sitting for one month of a three-month retreat, and this person in the other part of the room had already been there and settled in. So I moved in. I never met her. I think she left me a gracious note that said, hi and welcome, and my name is, and that kind of thing. And we kind of, you know, I began to practice, and she continued to practice. And I had taken a sleeping bag. I was going to do this kind of simply. And I don't know, a week or ten days into the retreat, I came back to discover this note that said, Please do not zip and unzip your sleeping bag in the middle of the night. (laughs) Well, you know, this did not sit very well because I was already old enough to be getting up to use the toilet in the night. And um, I just, and I was going to bed later than she and often getting up earlier than she. So, you know, there was a lot of in and out of the bag that was happening while she was trying to sleep. And I was very annoyed. And I stomped around for a couple of days being very annoyed. But, you know, the blessings of those retreats is that you have teachers, and the teachers suggested that I could begin to do loving-kindness practice with this person. So rather grudgingly, I agreed that I would do that. And I also 
I guess maybe because I'm a good kid, figured out that I would make a practice of not zipping or unzipping the bag. So I would go in about 7 o'clock at night and get the bag down, maybe like the last 12 inches were open. And then when the time came to go to bed, I would wiggle into the bag. And then when I got up to pee, I would wiggle out of the bag. And then I would wiggle back into the bag. And so it went for night after night after night while I was doing, may you be happy and may you be peaceful. And, uh, and may you be free. And, you know, but actually as time went on, you know, the practice got to be kind of fun, the wig- all that wiggling. And I began to soften a little. And by the time I left, which was before she left, so I never got to talk to her about this. I never knew anything more about her or what was going on or why this was necessary or what, you know, what was disturbing her, what was so disturbing to her sleep. And it was only several years later when I encountered her at another retreat. And she said, I was so grateful to you. And she said, I was in the early months of chronic fatigue. I was very sick. You know, rest was really tricky. I didn't know what to do. I was lost, scared, confused, all of those things. And, you know, it was really this wonderful shift. It was like we were good buddies right at that point, you know, that all of that grudging metta actually worked. Isn't that interesting? You know, it actually works even when you do it, kind of not wanting to do it. But it's still drop by drop, begins to change things in there. Next week, my most wonderful teacher, His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, is going to be with us in San Francisco. If any of you can get there, I would recommend it. And, you know, he's this remarkable being that many of us are very drawn to. And he the understanding in the Tibetan Buddhist world is that he is the bodhisattva of compassion, that he is the actual incarnation of compassion itself. Now, I don't know about that. I don't even know that he knows about that. But what I do know about him, because I've watched him and I've had the occasion to be with him over the years in a very wonderful way, is that He takes his job description totally seriously. And his job description is that he is the incarnation of compassion. So that's what he does. And if you watch him with people, you know, he's just, he comes right up to you and he looks you in the eye, you know, kind of like, hi, you know, how are you? Are you in there? And I've seen him, sometimes he'll go into a room and he just somehow always figures out who's suffering the most in the room and makes a beeline for that person and kind of touches in and makes sure they're okay. I mean, they're just wonderful, wonderful stories of how he does that, you know. And the Secret Service, you know, now he has Secret Service protection because Bill Clinton gave him head of state status. And they vie to work with him. And it's a big moment in any time when he's in this country, when the time comes for the group photo, you know, where they get to snuggle up to the Dalai Lama and have their picture taken. And if you ask them, you know, they all look kind of 
grim. The last time I, I was at one of these events was in Tucson a year ago. And, and, you know, they're kind of grim and guarding him. But if you get them in the elevator or something and say, you know, how is it being around the Dalai Lama? All of a sudden, these grim guys in the dark suits, they just brighten up and they say, oh, you know, they just, they just love him. And, you know, he's probably secretly changing the secret service under our very noses. Just with just this way of really acknowledging our common humanity and being friendly. Imagine, you could go back to work on Monday. And you could go to your meeting or whatever, your clients, and you could be the bodhisattva of compassion. You could try it. I think it's a good idea, actually. We could all try it. Or you could do it with your children or with your partner or with your friend, you know? In the Metta Sutta, one of the lines that kind of hits every time that I chant it or read it is the one that says, unburdened with duties. The person who's doing this, this training and friendship, is unburdened with duties. And I really wanted to highlight it tonight because I think it's one of the places where we really get caught when we are really intending to be friendly, but then we get so busy, we are going so fast with all of these things that we all do, you know, lined up in our appointment book, that we hurt each other, you know? And we don't take that pause that the Dalai Lama does to really look somebody in the eye and say, hi, you know, how is it in there? And so this is part of that training, is to just begin to take it seriously and to do it. And it's not, you know, it sounds like it'd be all mushy and syrupy and kind of sweet and saccharine and all that stuff. And it's not, you know. You all know, remember that, that again, another line in the sutta where the practice of loving kindness is being like a mother who protects with her life her child, her only child. Now, if mom is protecting the child with her life and you try to do something to that child, she's probably going to be ferocious, right? I mean, think of all the mama bears and that kind of thing. That's, that's what happens, is they're ferocious. Anybody would be ferocious. And they say, no, you can't do that to my child. Or sometimes the good mom is also saying no to that child because that's the best way to love that child in that moment. Again, in the Tibetan Buddhist world, a lot of the images in the Tibetan world really describe these different mind states. And there actually is a um, what they call a wrathful deity. So one of these ferocious ones, you know the images of the ferocious ones? They have claws and bulging eyes and they skulls around their necks and flames usually around. And one of them is Mahakala, who is the wrathful aspect of compassion, isn't it? I think that's a pretty interesting thing. And what this aspect of mind does is clear away any obstacle to awakening. And it said that it appeared when it was realized that peaceful methods were too mild to protect people from the consequences of the, their misguided behavior. So it's that way that you know, we understand that sometimes 
it's important to take a strong and ferocious stand. Now this is different, I think, from reactive anger. We're not talking about that, but that place where it's really fine and a really kind thing to do to say, no, just like that. And maybe particularly kind to do it with your spiritual friends, you know, to let them know that certain things. You know, it comes up sometimes, just thinking aloud here, but I'm thinking of my board meetings down at Vipassana Santa Cruz, and sometimes, you know, we'd like, we were thinking not too long ago that we'd like to do something. We wanted to show movies. And then it turns out, you know, that's, it violates copyright law. You can't do that. You can't advertise that you're going to show dar- you know, movies and discuss their dharma aspects. And, you know, but there were a couple of people who said, oh, let's just do it anyway. Who will know? You know no, 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 no. But the kind thing was to say, no. And some of us did. You know, no, you can't go there. And that's part, it would be breaking a precept, actually. And so that's part of spiritual friendship. In the Nowen quote, if you remember, he says, forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. And I really wanted to bow a moment to the place of forgiveness because I really think he's right, you know, that a huge piece of kindness and friendship and love is about forgiveness. And we have, many of us, kind of old agendas about forgiveness. One student once said to me, it's the other F word, you know. They really didn't like it that much. And because they've been told to forgive and forget, you know, and to kind of make nice and smooth things over, and it just doesn't feel good. It doesn't seem right to do it that way. And really, I think there's another way to hold it, where it's about keeping the heart open, even when difficult things happen. Now, as I think I said in here, but maybe it was in one of the groups, that doesn't mean that you just let anybody into your life. You know, there are people, and I know this is true for some of you, there are people that it would be really dangerous to have them back in your life again. So it isn't meaning you just let them in, you open all of your boundaries. You keep them out of your life and out of your living room, but that does not mean keeping them out of your heart. There's a way in which you can keep the heart open. It takes a lot of skill and a lot of strength. Our friend Ajahn Amro once said to me about forgiveness, because I was saying, I don't know about these people, whether, uh." he said, look, he said, just don't take revenge. So that's one way to work with it. That's a start, you know, (laughs) not taking revenge. And Jack Hornfield likes to say about forgiveness that it's giving up all hope of a happy past. (laughs) So you're really letting go that this or that, you know, didn't happen. It did, and it was sad and difficult, and you were hurt. And is, you know, can you train the heart to still have some compassion for this person? So this practice of mindfulness, as we said at the beginning, the other practice, loving-kindness, mindfulness, really supports this development of of metta, of goodwill and friendliness, because of the acceptance that is developed. And, And because of the intimacy with ourselves that comes. Anne Morrill Lindbergh 
And a nice quote says, when one is a stranger to oneself, then one is estranged from others too. So this way in which we become friendly with all these hard places inside, and then we can be friendly with others. So we sit, and you've been doing this. I know you have, because I've heard you now talking with some of the most difficult places in yourself. And gradually, gradually, you know, you begin to accept them, what, whatever it is. And then as we accept it in ourselves, we more and more are able to extend that to others. It's not easy. You know, it's not easy. Some of us are blessed with very obvious friends, people who have supported us on the way, people who are companions in our everyday lives. And some have more solitary lives and or friendship has been difficult and you're not so sure about this friendship thing. You know, who's going to support my practice? I can't find them. And there is one teaching that I particularly wanted to mention, which is that there is a teaching that every being on this planet is enlightened but one. And you know who the one is, right? It's you. And they, all of those theys, are doing what they're doing in order to help you wake up. So this is a way, actually, of holding everything, every act, everything that happens to you as an act of spiritual friendship. It's pretty wonderful, really. And it's the the sort of thing we laugh a little and we think, oh, that's sweet. But I want you to know, just try it. Just try it. It is such a tough practice to really work with it seriously. You can laugh at it. But when you really work with it seriously, that means, you know, the person who cuts rudely in on the food line and takes the last piece of pizza, this is obviously not from this retreat because we haven't had pizza yet, you know, is doing it in order to help you wake up. (laughs) And you get to see if you can keep your heart open and be equanimous and all of those things, you know? And as I was writing this this afternoon, I was thinking about an extremely difficult time we had in our sangha in Santa Cruz some years ago and thinking about, it was so painful and there were, you know, there was a lot of anger and there were people who were angry at me and, oh, it was, it was a long struggle that went on for about 18 months. And, you know, I learned so much from that struggle. I learned so much. It's maybe one of the most important things that has happened to me in these years of doing the practice of teaching. So these difficulties can be part of what, in the end, supports you when we work with them that way. So then the last thing I want to say, the last bit, at the end of the sutta on kindness, there's a very interesting verse that used to puzzle me a lot. Maybe it puzzled you when we chanted it the other night. It says, By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, 
being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I used to think, huh? You know, we're talking about all this friendship and kindness and holding all beings, and then all of a sudden it's about getting out of here. I don't understand it. What is this? What is this? But you know, it's actually a wonderful description of the wise friend. By not holding to fixed views, it starts. And that place of fixed views, you know, that's... That's the place where, if you go back to the Robert Bly poem about the nest, you know, we want the nest to be round, you know, and we want people to be a particular way, and we not only want them to be, but we know that they are. You know, she's always this way, and he's always that way, and I am a person who likes this, doesn't like this, has to have, you know, that I am a person who phrase is a very dangerous one. And so we place ourselves and others in these categories and cubby holes, and we know for sure who we all are. We know for sure. And when we do that, it limits our experience and it limits our goodwill. You know, then we can't extend our goodwill to any being who is suffering. And so this place of, of um, beginning to let go of those views, and beginning is really the operative word, because it's a huge, huge endeavor of just letting go of the centrality of I and me and mine, letting go of um, the notion of, of um, a solid and separate self, and also letting go of the notion that this or that person is solid and separate and we know. So that then this, this, it's really, the Buddha is pointing to the wisdom of the beginner's mind of not knowing. I can't think of any better advice in relationship. You know, when, when Russell and I are kind of doing our difficult dance, and I know who he is, and he walks in the door, and I'm sure I know who he is, you know, this is not helpful. And we don't make much progress under those circumstances. It's especially difficult if he knows who I am, you know. And we both have views, and our views get really tangled. But when we have those moments, or you have those moments in your relationships, when you can take a deep breath and not know who just walked in the door, who just walked in the door and be a little curious and kind of interested, then something can shift and change. It's very wonderful. It's very wonderful. Because you never know who's going to arise. Passes away. How we can actually watch a movement pass into cessation, into the third noble truth. And we see that we don't have to act out on every desire, on every aversion, to find peace that actually peace is available in the steadiness of being with that in seeing how it all passes into cessation. That our nature is is by nature uh, satisfied. So we don't have to push away anything. We don't have to reject anything. We just have to look at the way that our grasping, our wanting kind of um, takes over the object, whether it's a relationship or an experience. 
We're not getting rid of the thing itself, we're getting rid of our attachment to it. It's a very important distinction. As Tilopa, famous uh, Indian master, said to his disciple Naropa, it's not the outer objects that bind us, but our attachment to them, our inner attachment to them. So we don't have to renounce the world or reject the world. We just have to understand our relationship to it and to see where the grasping causes suffering. So the last hindrance that I want to talk about is the hindrance of doubt, or skeptical doubt, the doubting mind. It's the mind that you've probably heard a lot today of, what am I doing here? Why did I come to this retreat? What was I thinking? Why didn't I go backpacking or to the spa? Or looks like a spa. <laughs> Doesn't feel like a spa. <laughs> and who do I think I am meditating? Like, who do I think, you know, these teachers are? What do they know? And what about my friend who told me to come? What does he know? <laughs> like, what's up with that? Wait till I get home. <laughs> And it's the mind that doubts our capacity. So we sit down, we're all excited, we get the instructions, okay, right this time, breath, here it comes. <laughs> in, out, in, out. Oh, I wonder what's for dinner. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you can't do this. You're hopeless. You can't follow more than two breaths. This is pathetic. You've never been good much at anything at all, actually. I don't know why you even bother coming here. And on and on it goes. The self-deprecating, self-doubting, undermining of our confidence. And it's really important to notice this quality because doubt is, um, is subtle and it usually grows slowly and it often disguises itself as the voice of reason and wisdom. I know what's best for you. It often comes as, a, as a, like a Dharma coach voice. Nah, I'm not sure if this practice is right for you. You know, I think that Zen stuff is really where it's at. Those black robes and all that bowing and, you know, the form. And or maybe the Tibetans, you know, they have a really interesting style of practice. I think that's what you should be doing. This, this, this spirit rock thing is not what you need to be doing. So it comes as, as, as if it has your best interest. And if we don't recognize it, it saps, uh, both saps our confidence, but also disengages us from what we're doing. So instead of engaging with the practice, we start evaluating, we start doubting, we start stepping back. And then it becomes self-fulfilling because we start disengaging and stop, you know, we stop coming to things or doing them half-heartedly. And then we, you know, the practice doesn't work. So Mostly what we need to do with all these hindrances, but... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.